While we continue to meditate, let's uh, follow this visualization that Swamiji offers us. Visualize yourself as a traveler in a foreign land. Carry a bright light like a torch in your heart, shining forth energy and joy into everything. Whatever pleasure you derive from the sights around you depends on how you react to them. Shed light everywhere around you. Smile with confidence in the fact that, as you are within, so will this foreign land be for you. Be joyful inwardly first, then. With that joy, observe everything around you. What you bring to the world will determine what you gain from it. Now affirm with me. I enjoy life. I enjoy myself. No matter what is bestowed on me. I enjoy life. I enjoy myself. No matter what is bestowed on me. I enjoy life. I enjoy myself no matter what is bestowed on me. Om. Peace. Amen. We are now up to Lesson 16, Being a Successful Employee. It's a very important lesson Swami puts in here because only some people have leadership positions and most people in the world are not entrepreneurs. And so the vast majority of people who work work for someone in circumstances that they don't have a great deal of control over. And it's it's not an ideal situation, but because it's the one that so many people find themselves in, I think it's an extremely important aspect of this to um, develop. Also, if you are in a leadership position, if you have some idea of what it is that will really make a good employee, you can also help those who work for you by doing your part to bring out of them the very best qualities. So, um, it's interesting because we have been so economically fortunate in this country for so long that people have been able to um, think a lot about what they prefer to do. We, We very rarely, until recently, when jobs have been a little bit harder to find, have had to do just what we could find to do. And especially young people without a lot of obligations have been able to, this is what I want, this is what I prefer, and then you take this job and you don't like it, you take a different job and you go off and you find another one. And um, it's not like eras that some of our um, ancestors lived through. I mean, our even the Depression era, which wasn't that long ago, our grandparents or our parents lived through, where there was no question about whether or not this work was fulfilling. It was a question of whether or not you could find any way to earn enough money to feed your family and to feed yourself. Um, In just the recent times, you know, suddenly it's not been quite so easy for people to switch from one job to another. And I know people have gotten caught 
and having left some lucrative for job for something more meaningful and then found that it wasn't so easy to replace because this um, economic downturn sort of stepped into the middle of it. Whether this continues or not, um, and whether this trend continues or not, I know people coming out of college are finding, whereas they expected to to have their choice, um, things are just not working exactly as they always worked. Now, it's a positive thing, naturally, to want to find work that's meaningful to us. I mean, God knows we have to spend a lot of time doing it. And it consumes a lot of our psychic and emotional and physical energy. So we certainly want to have something that at least doesn't compromise us and, if possible, benefits us. But one of the fundamental rules of material success that Swamiji has emphasized over and over and over again, and he's always coming back to it, and that principle is you have to relate to things as they are. I mean, the, the, the um, entrapment of wishful thinking is one of the, the most um, consistent characteristics of the lack of material and personal success, is just wanting things to be different, not being willing or able to perceive what actually is, and even less having the, the conscious will to then relate to things as they are. So by, by in this lesson, Swamiji does a lot of just, this is the way the world works. And interestingly, he goes back to in, in several parts of this as we'll go through it, and he just points out, look, a great deal of life is compromise. And he tries to make some distinctions between compromising on principle and just necessary compromises. But he even allows a little space that sometimes in the interest of practicality, you have to sort of skate a a narrow edge on this. And he has a very interesting concept in here, which he, he comes back to a number of times, which is he said, you don't have to be emotionally invested in your work. It's a very interesting statement that he made. He's sort of drawing a distinction. Some of us have work that is so meaningful to us that we can really invest our whole feeling nature into it. I mean, it, 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 it's, there's no distinction between ourselves and the work we, we, do, we do. And of course, that's an ideal that we can all strive for. But he, he points out that sometimes we may just find ourselves in circumstances where there just simply isn't a sufficient resonance between the work that we have to do and our own true and inner nature. So then he just suggests that simply don't become emotionally invested in it. And that has several aspects to it. One is that we don't always think, oh, I I don't like this, I wish I could give more, I'm so displeased. Or we don't always become emotionally invested in it in the sense of criticizing it constantly either. We just have a sort of slightly impersonal attitude that this is the work I've been given to do and I'll do it conscientiously, but it doesn't have to be sort of the beginning and the end of, of my whole life. Now, there's lots of good arguments against that, um, against settling for that, but the point you have to deal with is that you also have to be practical. And even when Swamiji talks about this, he, he draws a couple of interesting distinctions. He, he speaks of himself saying that he would never compromise any principle ever for any reason. He said, but I'm not married, I have no children. And then he doesn't exactly, in other words, nobody relies upon him. And even those who do rely upon him, which are many, many people who've committed themselves to Ananda, 
they understand that this is the given. And so that's just simply the way, you know, it, it has to work. But he also then, and he says this rather obliquely, he has the power to create what he wants. And he has the courage to create what he wants. Because he talks in there, and he, he doesn't draw a fine point on it, but this is the implication. A woman friend has written to me that she can't find meaningful work, and she keeps looking, but she can't find it. I don't know if she has the capacity to create her own enterprise, to create her own business. Essentially, I wish her luck. And what he's implying in there, without really wanting to be too pointed in it, is saying, we also have to be practical. You know, he, 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 he respects her desire to do something she can wholeheartedly believe in, but you have to be willing to also take full responsibility for manifesting it. You can't just hope that somebody else is going to both create the enterprise and then give you a place in it and then honor all the values that you have. Um, it's an ideal worth striving for. And Swamiji comments in there, the more people who work like this, the more the world will become like this, the more meaningful work there will be for everyone. It was very interesting to David and to me when we first moved to this area, which was now 1987, you know, more than 20 years ago, quite a good while ago. And we both came from having lived at Ananda Village. I'd lived at Ananda Village <clears throat> for 16 years <clears throat> since I was 22. David had lived there a shorter period of time and had also worked, uh, been, been an entrepreneur in se- several times over before he even got to Ananda Village. He'd had more experience working in a conventional surrounding. I basically really had none, have none, is the only thing I can say. Um, we, had, we had been able to live, according to Yogananda's ideal, where he talks about home, job, and church in one place. Not only one physical place, but one sort of um, place in, in our reality. In other words, that there was an integrated flow between the work that we do and the life that we live, which is, uh, was my entire and only goal as a young person was to find such a reality, um, probably because it was such an intense value to me is why I've ended up here. But the end point being, um, when we came to this area, there was no Ananda community. There was an ashram house, but there was no Ananda community. And we were extremely keen, having lived in community for so long, to recreate the community experience. And we were, we were interested to find out that almost no one was interested in moving into a community. They weren't really sitting around thinking, oh, what I need to do is change my living situation. In fact, most people were intensely protective of their living situations. You know, having carved out some spot that worked for them, they were not necessarily looking for an alternative to it. But almost everyone wanted us to create industries and jobs. It was, it was poignant to me, the extent to which people were discontented with their work. You know, either felt abused by the people they worked with, unsatisfied by what they were asked to do, many, many different reasons. So the way Swamiji talks in here about how to make the best of whatever situation you're in is an extremely important truth because really much of the time in life we really can't take control of our circumstances. Circumstances come first and then we have to operate within them. And I don't mean to make that the the antithesis of everything else we've been teaching, 
But part of the skill to succeed on your own is also, as I was saying earlier, the ability to adapt to whatever situation you find yourself in. So it's a very necessary balance. Because also, don't imagine when you gain complete mastery, if you gain mastery over your situation, become an entrepreneur, become your own boss and all that, that you won't have to be constantly adapting to situations as they are. I mean, the the myth that somehow if I'm solely responsible, then somehow that's going to be a lessening of the burden is completely false. I mean, the person who works for themselves realizes that there's no, absolutely no margin in that system. Because if you stop putting out energy, energy stops coming in. If you work for someone else where the uh, flow is in place, you have good days and bad days, you have conscientious days and you have lazy days, you have all sorts of things happen, but the flow is in place. Whereas if you're responsible, then there is a, a completely different kind of burden resting upon you. And that's why Swamiji was speaking of his woman friend who wanted to do something more meaningful and him just saying, well, I don't know if she really has it in her to be able to stand up against obstacles in that way. So also we have to be realistic about our own nature. You know, some people are cut out for that kind of thing and some people aren't. Um, Let's see. Let me just get to... Swamiji talks realistically first at the beginning about the fact that, you know, a company will have a certain ethical standard. And even within that reality, some companies are more honorable than others. He does say, if you find yourself in a situation that is truly dishonorable, it's not worth compromising dharma for any reason. But oftentimes, it's shades of gray is what you're working with. And he's saying, even if you know the policies of the company are beneficial, it has to go through so many layers that by the time you're standing, wherever you're standing, you're never dealing with a pure reality anyway. Now, he's saying all of this to, to say, let's not just sit around and want the world to be different than it is. You know, these are the circumstances that happen in life. We, we're dealing with lots of human nature. And by the end of this lesson, he gives us ways to work with ourselves, to work with our own dynamic inner energy, to find a serviceful way to exist in whatever context we exist in. That was the visualization that we did at the beginning. We move in this world, he says, visualize yourself in a foreign land, which is really where we're living now, even if we were born and raised here, which is that we are separated from our soul's true home, Satchitananda. And we need to move through this world with a shining light in our heart, and that in all circumstances we shine that light outward, we give that light outward wherever we are, And then if one's primary job, no matter what the job description is, one's primary job is the shining of that light, then you can always feel that you're meaningfully engaged. And if the other work that you do is less important, less important in the great scheme of things of your own life, it becomes, you're emotionally invested, so to speak, in the kind of conscious vibration that you put out and less invested in the actual work that you do. Although he speaks later about don't ever think, therefore, that excuses you to do a bad job. Because that's just death to all, all good things. <clears throat> Swami talks about here about office politics, about how um, disloyalty sets in. 
he's just sort of um, talking about just how all of these things happen. And that most people in the world are motivated by ego. And only a few are not motivated by that. And again, he's just listing out all these things in a very calm manner so that we will understand that this is the reality that we have to work with. Okay. So he he talks here in that, unfortunately, employees are more obliged, even executives, to compromise. This being the case, it may help them to reflect that all life is a compromise. We must all accept some need for it in the workaday world. The important thing is not to betray our conscience in important matters. A friend of mine, Hari Das, um, when he was in charge of the center in Sacramento many years ago, and it was really a fledgling effort. This was like 30-some years ago. And there simply wasn't enough money coming in from the enterprise itself to support him and the other minister who was living there at the time. So he went out and got a day job. He was a minister part-time, and he, and he got a job working for a demolition company, I think it was, something like that. Just some sort of very straightforward, simple task. And his boss wasn't entirely honest, but it didn't actually affect any of the work that Haridas had to do. His boss was a little bit inclined to cut corners, but Haridas always managed to just be able to have integrity in what he was doing. But he saw a situation coming in which he knew his boss was going to ask him to do something that he was going to have to say no to because it really wasn't honorable. It wasn't an honorable request. And it, for some reason, Haridas knew that it was going to come and he knew when it was going to come. So he had lots of time to anticipate it. At the same time, the job worked really well for him. He liked it. He was well paid and it enabled him to do what he really wanted to do. And it was it was just simple, straightforward work. I really think he was smashing buildings, if I'm not mistaken. But he, he, he contemplated with no little anxiety what he was going to do when the boss made this request of him. And he prayed to Divine Mother, you know, to be protected. And when, the, when it finally happened and the boss asked him to do whatever this dishonorable thing was, Hari just said, he just looked at the man and said, oh, you know I can't do that. And the boss said, okay. <laughs> and just walked off you know and it never ever came up again now it was a, a a charming and very truthful example of the fact that if we look to our own consciousness and have faith in the rightness of our own actions and there was he there was no judgment involved he didn't spend a lot of time being really negative he he didn't he didn't angst in the in a um a non-productive way. He just knew he was going to be faced with a problem. He was going to solve the problem in the only way that was possible. He would take the consequences. And Divine Mother just made it work for him. Now, I think it's a a very important thing to keep in mind because often we think, I'll have to do this, I'll have to do that, this person will react that way, that person will react that way. And we don't understand that if we stay in the right vibration, and Swamiji talks about this in this lesson, even one person in an enterprise who has really good consciousness can change the magnetism of the whole enterprise. And certainly any individual in a direct encounter who has very good consciousness can often shift things in the way they need to go. We, we imagine that everything is run just from the egos, but it isn't really. There's always a higher power at work. And this is sometimes the way 
in a practical sense that Swamiji says not all of us can quit uh, uncongenial situations or or leave positions where we're asked to compromise in certain ways, but we can draw the line wherever we feel we need to draw the line, but he really encourages us to make sure that we're taking a stand on principle and not merely annoyance. So-and-so may be negative, so-and-so may be critical, so-and-so may have a small nature, so-and-so may be a little bit of a conniver, you know, all these different things, but that's what life is about. And later on, in an earlier lesson, you may remember Swamiji said, if you haven't been able to draw to yourself a better situation, then perhaps you should buckle down and learn what lessons this situation has to teach you. And again, that's part of what a reality where success comes from. Okay. You know, for Swamiji, it's interesting though, and I, I realized this when I was working on the book about him, and I've, I wrote it in there, and I think I've said it elsewhere. When Swamiji was 22, and he, you know, was had had dropped out of college, he was trying to be a playwright, he'd stopped trying to be a playwright, he was just sort of adrift, really. He didn't know what he was going to do until he found autobiography of a yogi and came to master. He was a man of tremendous promise, but none of that promise had been fulfilled, and the only work he'd ever done had just been, you know, odd jobs that a boy would do. He'd never had any serious work in his life. And then he went to... um, Yogananda, he became a disciple, he became a monk in their very first meeting, September 12, 1948. And then, 14 years later, he was expelled from SRF. He was 36 years old, he was a fully professed monk, that was the only life he knew, and then all of a sudden he was completely out on his own. He had no money, he had no, no experience except being a monastic, he had no skills except the wonderful skills that he developed as a disciple and as a teacher, And there he was. Fortunately, his parents were able to take him in. But he was 36 years old with nothing, nothing at all. And then he had to just go forward and figure out what to do after that. But what's very, very interesting and worth noting is that he never, except when he took the job with the Peace Corps to try to teach the Peace Corps volunteers about India, he never worked for anybody and he never... Um, that worked for anybody else, and he never tried to earn his living by any means except spreading Yogananda's teachings. I mean, it was a very, he, he drew a very, very narrow channel for himself. He worked extremely hard at that. He wrote books, he made recordings, he gave classes, he you know, constantly came up with ideas and enterprises, but never did he do anything except remain absolutely loyal to that commitment he'd made to Yogananda. I will be a disciple. My life is to serve your work. Now, not all of us have the karma to be able to make such an inward resolution, but of course then he had the willpower and the magnetism to push through that. But um, it, it sets us a good example. And it also helps us to understand that we have to behave appropriately for the consciousness that we actually have. You know, his consciousness was so one-pointed that there was no other moral choice for him. But in ourselves, we might, um, what, what I'm trying to say is we might want to see ourselves in that light, but we also have to be realistic about what kind of karma we're actually living. Do you see what I mean? 
You know, and not, not everyone really has the destiny to just have nothing else in their life but what he had. It takes very, very good karma to be called to that point. And in the meantime, we bring ourselves that karma by doing as much as we can that is central to our highest purpose. And truthfully, that's one of the purposes of tithing. Because one of the things that tithing does is it takes the necessity to work and it makes at least part of that work a direct service to the divine work to which we are dedicated. I mean, I always come back to tithing as often as I can, but if you are not content with the work that you have, tithing is one of the ways both to make that work more spiritual because every day's work that you do is also directly working for Yogananda's cause if that's the place that you choose to tithe. Because how do all these things happen? How does the divine work happen? Somebody somewhere gives money to it. They have to. That's just the common sense way it works. And if you don't have the karma to be able to work directly in making that work happen, then let the work you do be a direct way of making that work happen. And that is also, among many other things, a direct way to bring you more meaningful work. Because you're using the work you have to serve the divine cause. There's so many ways in which the practice of tithing, and that's again why tithing, not donating, because tithing is saying that a percentage of everything I gain from my employment goes to that spiritual work. In other words, 10% of my effort is always going to go to the spiritual work. It's not the same as saying, oh, I have a lot of money left over, I think I'll give some. Because then it's still all your money. It's not your effort your actual labor that's supporting the spiritual work. You see what I mean? If we find, whenever we find ourselves in circumstances we don't like, we have to think beyond just the obvious egoic solutions. Oh, I'll call my friends, I'll network. You know, everything doesn't just happen on the ego level, it also happens on the divine level. And if the karmic situation we're in is something that we would like to shift, we have to bring in more powerful causes to shift that karma. We can't just sort of think that our little egoic efforts are the only force in the universe. Swamiji talks about that in here. So then Swamiji also says, if you, fi- if you yourself need to work under someone else and cannot devote yourself wholeheartedly to the job you get, be at least honest, truthful, and honorable. Work sincerely for your pay. He said, don't be a clock watcher. It's a very interesting, you know, very well-known phrase. Man's duty in life is to become, above all, increasingly aware. Be the sort of worker, then, who applies himself intelligently, conscientiously, and supportively to the tasks he's given. And then he says, you don't have to, in other words, become emotionally involved in the goals of your firm or of your employer. But... You need to work with full awareness. And this is a very, very important point, and I want to spend a little bit on it now. So often people feel, well, this job is not really important to me, so I really am only going to give a little bit of my energy to it. Or I'm not going to really do it that well. What does it matter? You know, don't work so hard. Who cares about what's going on here? But you see, the difficulty is that every minute of our conscious reality, every minute of our life, is setting the stage for the next minute. And one of the, the greatest dangers in life 
is that as the years pass, instead of becoming more and more expansive in our awareness, we become more and more contracted in our awareness. Or, you know, when we're, when we're young and vital and we're so enthusiastic about everything, we have so much energy, you know, we just think that that's going to last forever. But all of us find um, this sort of gradual kind of slowing down of the processes, or let me say it differently, all of us find that there's an, in, an inclination to go that direction. Um, uh, not too long ago at Sunday service, I was talking about the energization exercises and the enormously important role they play in our spiritual success and our capacity to stay both physically, mentally, and spiritually well. Because being able to maintain our energetic awareness is really the greatest battle that life is about. I mean, look around you. What makes people seem old? It's, it's Even if they're crippled, they don't seem as old as if they have let their awareness sink. Um, I, I recall a couple that I knew, and it was so interesting. Her awareness was completely in the present. She was conscious of what was going on in the world, which was less important, but she was conscious of what was going on in the moment. And she would respond to every situation with completely contemporary, spontaneous energy. Her husband, they were both in their 80s. Her husband, you could see, at a certain point, just began to give up. And everything that happened, instead of having the energy to relate to it in the moment, he just related it to what he already knew. I mean, almost literally. You could not get him to engage in a, in, a, in a present moment conversation. Every conversational opening for him was an opportunity to draw the energy back to his past and to repeat what he already had said thousands of times before, or to refer it to the way things used to be. It was such a contrast because they were both healthy and they were both the same age. It was a conscious decision that the two of them had made at different points in their life. I remember... And I must have been, it was probably when I was around 50. And it, it, I became very aware, I'd been watching, you know, for a few, a couple of decades, when you, you get to be 40 and then you get to be 50, and that's when your body begins to talk to you a little differently. Your body begins to say things like, we've been around a while and it's not so easy as it used to be. You know, it begins to gain weight, it begins to feel tired, I mean, I was trying, I'm way past this now, but I remember just going from a stepladder up to a a shelf or something I needed to stand on. And I just raised my leg and I just found myself unable to go up. You know, it was more than an average step. And later I was sort of reflecting, was it lack of strength, lack of balance, or just simple lack of courage, you know, (laughs) to just do it? But it was just, it was like something that I could always have done and then I couldn't do anymore. I find, you know, I can't open jars. I've just lost that sort of thing. But we begin to find that out. But, you know, I'm not making my living as a sports person. It wasn't really a, a, a problem. But I also began to notice the same kind of inclination in, in, in my overall response to life. It's like it's begun to assume a certain anguishing monotony. And there is that temptation that creeps in that says it would be more pleasant to put out less energy. 
I mean, that is what it is to die spiritually, is to begin to think it will be more pleasant to put out less energy. What is God, among other things? He's energy, isn't he? Infinite energy and perfect awareness. But the temptation to put out less energy is always there. And it begins to get more and more strong for many of us as we get older because we have to to consciously will that energy. And I watch myself around the age of 50 and I could just see, you know, either at this point I begin to get old or I remain dynamically aware. And it was like if I don't make a very conscious decision to commit myself with the same dynamic passion to, to, to life and work and relationships that I had automatically in my 20s and 30s, then it's just... I'll just turn out like every other old person around. You just kind of gradually get smaller and smaller. Um, You listen to people's conversations. It's just amazing what they talk about. Especially sometimes, and I don't mean to generalize, but sometimes older people, you'll just watch them just trade stories. You know, it's my turn to talk about me, and then it's your turn to talk about you, and then it's my turn to talk about me and my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children and then you talk about yours, and then I talk about mine. And, you know, there's just like, nobody is really there. Everybody's just drawn a small circle around themselves, and that's where they live. Now, one of the places where that really starts is if you have work that you don't absolutely love. Swamiji um, took a pic, made a slideshow once, um, of, he called it Different Worlds. It's really a fabulous um, a fabulous show and he took took just pictures of all these different people all over the world all different states of consciousness mostly materialistic worldly people at the beginning and then lots of pictures of devotees just to show you the difference in consciousness one of the pictures is people on the New York subway and they're you know they're gripping the subway thing like that and they're they're mostly standing just um, like they're putting out just enough energy to keep themselves upright and you can kind of see this um, torpor over their faces, just like, I don't really want to be here, I have to be here, but I'm just not going to be here for the time that I have to be here. And then they get off the subway, and they sort of wake up a little bit when their turn comes. I was talking to Swamiji about that, and he remarked, I said something like, well, the subway is not really a place you want to be. He said, yes, he said, but if you deal with unpleasant circumstances by lowering your consciousness and and diminishing your awareness, it gets to be a habit. So it's a, it's a very interesting and tricky business. He tells us about the Calcutta Kriyaban who dealt with the subway by getting on, doing a few Kriyas, going breathless, remaining breathless till his, his exit stop came. And then he would just get off the subway <laughs> and he would do that and then he would do that both forward and back. He'd just meditate in a state of super consciousness. He must have had the capacity to say, you know, bring me out of this when my train stop came. So he he never wasted any time. Uh, And as Swami said, he was probably not emotionally committed to the work he does. I mean, Lahiri Mahashaya worked as a government accountant, remember, for all those decades. Do you think he, like, had a passionate concern about government accounting? You know? But he was always fully aware He just drew his sustenance and his energy from another source and then applied the necessary attention to the work that was in front of him. 
Now, anything that we're involved in, you know, no matter how dull or no matter what it might seem, it can always be done with more or less attention, with more or less joy, with more or less energy. Even if the job is very simple, the enemy of self-realization is mental dullness, emotional dullness, spiritual dullness. We have to always be dynamic about what we're doing. And of course, that's the best way to improve our circumstances one way or another too. Not only in a practical sense, which is, you know, the office boy who's really conscientious about his tasks is going to be given a greater assignment. It's not only that, it's also that karmically, if we find ourselves in unpleasant circumstances, we have to make the most of them. And that's the rules that Swami articulates later about all the different ways that we can behave. So it's, it's really an important thing to keep in mind. You know, also, every single job in the world has its drudgery to it. There's tedium in everything that we do. One of my friends was saying to me, at first she rebelled against it, but she, the way she put it, she says, I enjoy tedium. <laughs> and there is a kind of um, just comfort in doing something simple and mindless. It's easier to do japa. You can pray for others. You can uh, have happy thoughts while you're doing it. Not everything is absolutely challenging. Um, It's a challenge to not be challenged. But still, it's something that we just simply need to learn. Okay. He also mentions here, to the material mind, to the worldly mind, material success seems attainable only by blood, sweat, and tears. In reality, divine assistance is always present. He, he's talking about world events. But the, um, he said, great masters work within the law of karma to hasten its effects, whether nationally or personally. They involve themselves, especially when the issues are, are major. But we must also realize that in any circumstance that we're in, we always have the choice as to whether or not we're going to be radiating light. And, of course, we can't radiate light unless we're in tune with that light. And too much self-concern about what we like and don't like about what we're doing is the best way in the world to cut that light off. And when we cut that light off, we've really ceased to do the only work that matters. Because projecting that light is the only thing that there really is to do. Um, He says here, often when a situation... Don't underestimate the power of consciousness. Often when a situation seems, objectively speaking, to be hopeless, a change of consciousness in even one corner of an enterprise may have far-reaching results. Um, Because everyone seeks happiness, though some seek it misguidedly, even one person may, for example, if he is radiantly happy, influence others for the better simply by being happy himself. You know, we're, we're so conscious of this at Ananda. I've seen this so many times um, because we've been very gifted at Ananda to have so many people who have beautiful consciousness. And just... I'll, I'll go back to Haridas because this was a very um, early experience that I had. Very, very early when I came to Ananda... The, at Ananda village in the very first days. It was very hermit-like in the community at that time, and there was a rule that nobody could put a dwelling, and dwellings was a very euphemistic phrase for what we lived in, 
Nobody could put a living space with insider hearing of anyone else. And I, because we would just, everybody wanted to be so far out in the woods that, you know, you were just completely on your own. And it was, and so I was, went to live up at the meditation retreat and I had a tent to live in that summer and I put the tent up where I thought we were quite safe. But it turned out that not that far around the corner there was a teepee where Haridas lived at that time and all the banging of pots and pans and talking and so on could, was actually audible. So this was considered to be an unacceptable uh, intrusion upon his solitude and privacy. So he came and said that we had to move the tent that we were living in. Um, this was the summer, and it was about 105. You know, really, really hot up there at that time. And the, it, the place that we had to move it to was covered with Kit Kadizzi. I mean, the, the choice, it was covered with Kit Kadizzi, which is this really tough uh, ground cover, And so it had to all be scraped away. But he was willing to put his energy behind the project since he had demanded that we do it. So we all got together on this Sunday afternoon and we were going to move all this. And I hardly knew the man at the time, but it was so vivid in my mind because I think it would be hard to imagine a less congenial task than the one we were engaged in, which was digging out this tough ground cover on a Sunday afternoon in 105 degree weather. It was dusty, it was hot, it was unpleasant. But it wasn't an unpleasant task. And it wasn't unpleasant because of the simple fact that he refused to allow it to be unpleasant. It was like, okay, we have to do this, and therefore we will just be cheerful, because why not? And of course, it was his signature characteristic. Years later, um, when one very hot summer Sunday afternoon, when he was working on the staff at the Expanding Light, I found him, and there was like a hundred chairs in the temple, and there were a hundred chairs in the dining room, and the chairs in the temple were one kind of chair, and the chairs in the dining room were another kind of chair, and he was all by himself, and he was moving them from, he was shifting, he was switching them. And I sort of said, what are you doing? And he said, well, someone thought the chair should be switched, he said. So no, no, that's not true. I said, what are you doing? He said, exercising. And he said, I said, someone wanted the chair switched. And he just sort of, he wouldn't even bring himself to articulate it. But then he smiled and said, if they want it changed again, they can do it themselves. <laughs> but you know, it's like, what are you doing? I'm exercising. It would be so easy to think, why isn't someone helping me? This is such a stupid idea. It's so hot. I'm the only one here. But it's like, if this is going to be asked of me, everything that comes my way, I'm going to turn into a positive experience. Because the one who benefits from doing that is really pretty obvious. It's you. And Swami tells the story here about Corey Tenboom and her um, sister Betsy when they were in the concentration camps. They were um, Dutch Christians who were, were such upright people that when the Jews started being persecuted after the Nazis took over um, their country, they lived in Amsterdam, that they became part of a very active underground, um, hiding Jews in their house and rescuing Jews. Just it, They were very noble, and eventually they were caught because their work was so blatant. Virtually everyone in the city knew it, and finally somebody told them, told them, and they ended up getting sent to prison, to concentration camp. Betsy and her sister were, were spinsters, like in their 50s or even 60s by the time they were arrested. Maybe not quite that old. But anyway... So they ended up going through 
Corey and Betsy went through this ordeal. And Betsy, whom Corey always considered to be her teacher and the more saintly among them, insisted that they be grateful for absolutely everything that happened. And so this, one of the stories is that, that the places they found themselves, one of them was just absolutely infested with fleas. And it was just sort of almost like the last straw. I mean, they're already crowded in. They've been taken from their homes. They're virtually starving. They're having to do horrible work. But Corey explains that somehow the fleas were just like the worst aspect of it. And when Betsy started, you know, in her prayers, thanking God for the fleas, Corey just had to remain silent. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't bring herself to go that far. And then one evening, they were having a secret prayer meeting, which they often did. They would gather when, they were no, when no one was around, and then they would conduct these prayer meetings, which were very important, but they were absolutely forbidden. And suddenly, the guard came in there with all these, was coming into the room with all these visiting officials, and they were just about to go into the room where they would have been discovered And suddenly the guard says, don't go into that room. It's filled with fleas, just like that. And then they were saved. And then after that, they realized that they could have their prayer meetings undisturbed night after night because no one would ever come in there because of the fleas. And when Corey sort of saw all that happen, she rushed over to Betsy and she fell down on her knees and she said, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the fleas. Isn't that interesting? But you see, it was a conscious decision on Betsy's part that whatever comes to me, I will find a way to make this positive. Because if I find a way to make this positive, what am I doing? I am saying to life, whatever comes, comes from God. And whatever I'm asked to do, I do it. Here's another really, these are horrific examples, but they're powerful ones. Richard Wormbrand was a, a minister of some um, relatively fundamentalist Christian sect. I can't remember now what denomination he is. He's probably passed away now because he was quite elderly. He was, first he was, let's see, he was a Jew, he was a Romanian Jew who converted to Christianity. So first he was persecuted by the Nazis for being a Jew. And then when Romania was taken over by the communists, he was persecuted by the communists for being a Christian. So he spent a great deal of his adult life in prison, and not just in prison, but in concentration camps, circumstances, not just in jail. And once he talked about a time when he was being tortured, they never killed him because he was very prominent, and finally he was essentially ransomed out by um, Christians from some uh, free country. They, they bought him, Romanian. The Romanian communists needed money, and so they were able to ransom him out. Um, but he talked about a time when the guards were forcing him to walk in a circle around his prison cell. And I I can't imagine what power they used to force a person to do something like that. I don't, don't even want to imagine. But he found himself forced to walk. And he was sick and he was exhausted and it just went on and on and on. And there's a natural part of you that thinks, that divides yourself from what you want to have happen and what is happening. And a tremendous amount of of the definition of stress is when you have a fixed point and life is trying to take you somewhere and you won't go with it, like a rubber band. But if you move with it, that tension never builds. That's a very important thing to realize. Stress is merely the resistance to what's happening. 
So he found himself here. And with his deep faith in God, he's a great saint. He began to think, how can anything happen outside of the will of God? And if it's the will of God that this happened, then I want to put my will into it also. Why would I have a will other than that is the will of God? And he describes in his writing about the more he walked with the conscious awareness that it was God who was asking him to walk. He, he, he actually just went into a state of ecstasy and he lost complete uh, awareness of anything except his own inner state of complete happiness as he was forced to just walk and walk and walk. Now that's a very extreme example. And God willing, none of us will ever face such a thing. But you take a story like that and you think, you know, how close can I come to that? You know, how many times do I declare that what's happening is not God's will for me? Or do I forget that if God has put me here, then why wouldn't I accept it with gratitude? And if this moment is a divine gift, why am I holding my consciousness back from it? I mean, these are very elevated ways to deal with the mail at your desk. But why not? Because otherwise a whole lifetime goes by. And if we spend hours and hours of our lives working, but never allow ourselves to be fully aware and engaged, then it becomes a habit. So let's take a little bit of a break. The... um the lesson of someone like Richard Wormbrand and Betsy and Corey Tenboom, among others, um, someone was pointing out, is perseverance. And uh, the question was asked, you know, why did Richard Wormbrand not give up? Did he have some great sense that he had a, some mission to fulfill, which of course he ended up having? But I was thinking while he was buried in those prisons for so many years. He had no concept of ever getting out or knowing what was going on in the world. He gradually became quite renowned. Not exactly sure how. He must have smuggled some of his writing out. But he had no idea, you know, what was really happening. But I was thinking that, you know, lots of people die. And I know he remarked at different times when he was in prison that he should have died. Why didn't he die? But I, I think that, for one thing, the human spirit wants to survive. But I would think also a man like him would be there would be an inner impulse that it's not right to give up. You know, it's not merely that people have a desire to live, but it's that same, that same constant fact. It's, it's like to simply give up unless you really feel inwardly guided that now is the time for you to go and then you surrender your body or you surrender whatever situation it is. But the, the, the most powerful, one of the most powerful principles in life is perseverance. Very many, many years ago, for a brief period of time, when I was getting onto the spiritual path, I had, was involved in the I Ching. I mean, very, very little. It was never a real path for me. But every other one of those uh, quatrains or whatever they call them says, persevere, perseverance, perseverance furthers. I think that was the phrase. It became a joke to me. Perseverance, perseverance. And it's not really because we necessarily have anything tremendous to accomplish except that we have to overcome the tamasic energy. The tamasic energy is the downward-pulling, contractive energy. When we were talking 
the, the Gita classes, you know, months ago when we were studying through the Gita and we came to the section about the, the different gunas, it's the effort to overcome the, the aspect of yourself that thinks it's more pleasurable not to put out energy than it is to put out energy. That's the tamasic quality. And you have to overcome that in order to move into the higher levels of eventually into sattvic energy, which is spiritual energy. And that's the reason why you have to strive for excellence in everything that you do. Because the qualities that prevent you from striving for excellence are the, have to be overcome. It's not that the thing you're doing is in and of itself so important necessarily, although it, if it's good serviceful work, it might as well be done well. But when we ourselves suffer for less, then we damage ourselves spiritually. I'm not talking about... Um, Virgo deranged, you know, obsessiveness about every tiny little detail. Sometimes uh, to do it excellently, this is good enough. You know, when you're putting out a, a big project or something like that, you have to also keep the flow going. You can't become obsessive about every detail. Excellence is often accomplishing the task, not making every little thing perfect, working with things as they are and knowing, you know, when it's time to keep going forward and not worry about all the little parts of it. But that's overcoming the tamasic energy. And so I suspect, and even in life-threatening situations, there's just this feeling that I, I can't allow the forces of darkness to overcome me. I have to hold on to the light. I can't um, succumb by letting them win, by just giving up my will to this. I, I've not in this lifetime ever been in such a situation, so I have no idea. But I think that's what people do when they're faced with difficult illnesses, um, very contrary circumstances. You have to stay on the side of the light by holding your energy and attention there. It's a very important lesson. Okay, any other thoughts or questions before we go on? Swamiji has a a number of individual points here, and I think I'll just cover a few of them because I don't think we're going to stay with this lesson another... um, Here's an interesting comment here about be, be neither too formal nor too familiar with your, the person you work for. Swamiji often talks about just maintaining a certain dignity in our relationships. And last week when I was talking about being a leader, remember I was talking about how the leader has to maintain a certain position. He just can't be a pal among others. And if you're an employee, you should always be, be slightly respectful of the person you work with, at least in the work environment. Swamiji says if you have a relationship outside of the work environment, maybe that's different, but you need to keep the two strictly separate in your mind. You should always respect that this person has the karmic responsibility, you know, to make the decisions for the work that we're doing. And if you hold yourself in in respect, it's not only that it's a good consciousness for you to have, to just remember the balance of, of, of what you're doing, it also really helps the person you're working with because it doesn't put them in an unfortunate situation. Because he remarks that if your employer or your boss becomes over-familiar with you, it can also blind his judgment. He'll, he may be inclined not to be able to make the decisions that need to be made because he's in the wrong relationship to you, so you can be helpful. It's I know from being in a position of leadership for so many years now, to have people who work with you who work with you in the right way is just 
I can't express how important it is. And individuals who have to work as employees and want to advance and be respected, believe me, if you behave in this way toward the people who are making those decisions for you, they will do everything they can to support you and to keep you in their position. It's such an asset to be a leader and have people who support you in the right way. It, it just, it's an enormous, enormous thing. He says, never be a syncophant or a yes man, one whose priority is to please rather than to do his job well and conscientiously. It's a very um, interesting balance between being supportive and um, just trying to always um, be in, being insincere. And so it's just it's something you just have to work with. And then he says, relate to your boss from your own inner center to his. Among other things, what that does is that keeps you in the right relationship to yourself. It also allows you always to be conscious of whoever you're working for as, a, as an individual himself with, with his own reality. And, and it, it does both. It makes you both completely at ease and comfortable and also very respectful because you're giving that person the dignity of their divine self and you're also giving yourself the dignity of your divine self. But what Swami also adds is when you relate that way, it keeps your relationship on a very creative plane because it's not lost in all the details of just who am I and what do I do and so on. But you're always sort of going back to that superconscious source. And he says then always look for the best and relate to the best. He says, even if there's not a natural affinity, always look for people's good qualities. It's such a a fine habit to cultivate that it's very easy to point out faults, but so what? If you have to work with someone, it just does absolutely no good to dwell on it. Just try to think of what they do well and then just keep your mind mostly on that. It's a very important quality. He also says, too frequent contact between employer and employee can create tension especially in the subordinate, if the employer is always exercising his authority. And so you might realize that you don't always want to be hanging out with your boss, among other things, and you want to avoid situations in which the boss's word rules even when it's not about a situation in which he really has authority. That also comes into over-familiarity, can create too much tension. You know, develop a supportive attitude is just, um, it's, I've had to really meditate on that word supportive. Supportive is such a wonderful word. And supportive attitude just means you want the best for the person and you're always thinking about that and you're not allowing yourself to be ruled by a detail. Even he says, if your boss is bullying you, there's no reason except just keep supporting him. Don't allow him to bully you. But don't allow that bullying to turn you against him either. Just quietly be supportive of the positive things that he does and let the rest of it just roll over you. Don't be emotionally invested in what's going on. You know, if somebody tries to mistreat you in that way, it only works if it gets your goad. If it doesn't get your goad, it doesn't happen. It only happens if it's upsetting to you. And if you can keep your inner dignity, no matter what people do, of course, there's a point at which you might just say, this is not appropriate, I'm walking away from this. But a lot of sort of petty inconsideration just doesn't have to touch you. 
So someone is brusque in the way they speak, so they're not polite, so they don't thank you as often as they ought to, so they don't praise you for the work that you do. We need to find our confirmation inside. And just don't be, don't be obsessed by details. Um, another point he says is concentrating personally on what is being done, not on who is doing it. Swamiji always puts it that way. Be impersonal. Let the truth speak for itself. Don't always be thinking of personalities. Even if someone you don't like has a good idea, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. And who cares who really does it? No one owns the truth. Here's another point here. He says, don't insult a person of honesty by implying through excessive tact that you think his ego needs pampering. It was a very interesting way to put it. Tact is a virtue. But with truthful people, it should not be wrapped, the truth should not have to be carefully wrapped in cotton wool. I mean, haven't you ever had that? You know, just for heaven's sakes, just say what you mean. People become so timid about it, but but it's an interesting way he turns it. They're implying that you can't take the truth. I know, I remember, and I wrote this up in my book, someone came to Swami and said, you know, I read in a book on how to work with people that before, if you have to criticize someone, you should first tell them a couple of things that they do really well and before you tell them what you really came to say. Swami's response was, but that's so manipulative. And then he said, and any you know, thoughtful person will see through it right away. You know, it's like you have to be sincere. You can't just always be calculating. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't say supportive things. I know often when I have to write somebody or speak to somebody about something. It's not like I'm, I'm trying to get something from them, but if I'm talking to someone, I will take the opportunity to say something I might have wanted to say. Or I'll remember that we just did something together and it was great fun, you know, that, that happened. So it's not wrong to speak positively before you ask for a favor or bring up a difficult issue. But don't do it because you're trying to manipulate the person. Do it if it's a sincere expression. And sometimes situations are just too grave. You can't start by saying a couple of nice things. You have to say, we have a real problem. You know, somebody's come to you for some serious thing or what you're about to tell them is so serious, you can't really start by saying, oh, I love your hair that way and you really did a nice job with the cake the other day and, you know, by the way, why did you lie to me about this? It's like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not balanced. He says, familiarize yourself with your boss's nature and work with it realistically. And my, my husband is so good at this. Every so often I'll say something and he'll just, he always just says, well, that's the way he is. That's the way she is. You know, he's, he's very impersonal about it. Sometimes I'll say, yes, I know, and right now it annoys me. But he's just very, but that's the way he is. We just know that's what, that's what people are like. That's the way he is. Why should we be surprised? But you have to make a point of really trying to understand who people are from the inside. You relate to someone from the inside and then when they behave that way, you're sort of already looking through their eyes and it's not shocking to you. Tremendous amount of angst is caused because somebody is this way and you think he shouldn't be. (laughs) But he is. That's just the way he is. I remember, I may have shared this with you many years ago, um, this young man came to David and he was so distressed because his girlfriend was not behaving well and they were having all this problem. And we, we lived in this dome at the time and the, the bedroom was a loft and so you could be in the loft and, and it wasn't 
you wouldn't be seen, so it seemed like you were in another room, but in fact, you could hear everything. When this man came over, I happened to have been lying upstairs, so he just started speaking to David. I'm sure he didn't know I was in the room. He might not have cared. But so I just lay up there quietly and listened, and this man told this long tale of woe, because this woman was really a piece of work. But after he finished with this whole story, David's advice was, that's women. (laughs) It was all I could do not to burst out laughing from upstairs. But in fact, it was true. She was a slightly more extreme example of feminine foibles, but basically she was just pretty much a woman. There was not much else he could do. And he was a man, they didn't like it. That's the way she is. But you, you have to take the trouble to find out. If you work for somebody, take the trouble to feel who they really are. And then, as he says, work with them realistically. If that's what they're going to be like. And then you can also, then it helps you to understand, how can I approach this person if I need to work with them? How can I respond in the way that's needed? You know, Swami Kriyananda, as generous and as fine as he is, has also taught us all a lot about how to relate He's a very creative man. He often asks for input, but there's a time when a certain kind of input is required and a time when it isn't. You know, there's just many times because his nature is so strong, you have to really understand who he is and you really have to move with it. Any husband and wife who live together successfully gradually begin to understand who this person is and then you work with it realistically. You don't keep demanding that they go contrary to their nature because... That's just like a recipe for absolute misery. <laughs> Why would you do that? It's what parents do with their children. This is who my, my child is. I have to work with him realistically. It's another point here. Be completely true to your word. Never promise to do a thing and then forget to do it. Again, speaking from the position of being a leader, I just can't tell you how important it is. If you know that if you give something to someone, it will get done. I mean, it just... It, you, Such people are worth everything. And if you become such a person in your situation where if you say you'll do it, you'll do it. Or if you run into an obstacle, you'll converse about how you're going to do it. But you just don't don't let your word fail. And, And it just creates a force in the universe. It's so powerful. Um, And then he says, when your boss assigns you something, try to go beyond his expectations. You know, so many people will just do exactly what you ask and nothing more. But it's just so fabulous when not only will a person do the job like they said they will, but it'll come back to you just with a little more creativity, a little more energy, a little more refinement, a little more broader thinking. You know, if, if you wish to progress in the situation you're in, just put out a little more energy with a little more awareness. And once again, if, if he's trying or he or she is trying to make something successful and you're that kind of person, think how valuable you become. Because everything then works if they know they can rely on you. So another point here is be loyal. Never speak against your boss. Answer firmly and supportively of him any criticism others make against him. This is a quality so little prized in our culture. And Swami then tells this story about this receptionist in a radio station who agreed with Swami when he criticized her boss. And then when Swami reported the conversation to his own father, his father said she should never have said that. 
If she works for that company and they pay her salary, she should be supportive of what they do. That doesn't mean you have to be insincere, but to just pass along negative criticism just drains the energy out of everything. And just you just have to learn to keep your mouth shut, and also even to to defend, you know, within reason, if the acts are just a matter of opinion. But you get into these situations where everybody's backbiting all the time, and it just absolutely takes all the magnetism out of the situation. He says, be completely sincere. You know, be kind. Be sincere. Meaning you don't have to go along with things just because other people are going along with them. But you know, it's so amazing. If you just stand calmly strong in your own reality, you'll see that the tide just flows around you. You think you have to go along with all these things, but you don't. You know, it's, it was interesting. Rajasi Janakananda, of course, had tremendous power. But people knew he didn't like um, smoking. And it was an age when everybody smoked, but nobody ever smoked when he was present. And he never asked them not to. He just was himself, you know. And if you're kind and dignified and don't go along with crude language and crude stories or crude behavior, but just kindly and in a dignified way keep yourself out of it, you'll find that first as a joke, but later with respect, and I've certainly found this, people will stop behaving that way in your company. It may not change them overall, but they will stop treating, uh, stop doing that when you're there. And you don't do that by scolding or criticizing. You just do it by calmly and quietly holding your own vibration, smiling kindly, as Swami said, but not participating if, you're, if it's beneath you to do so. And then he says a few things about relating to your fellow workers. Never give the impression that you're in with the boss. You know, Swamiji often says about how he never tried, never claimed special position. That's how he put it, as a leader also. Don't, don't, because it disempowers everyone around you and they'll really resent you for it. You, if, you, if you have a position, something they can't answer, well, I know because I went out to lunch with the boss, then, then nobody has access to that but you and they all feel uh, demeaned. Um, never, if you disagree with what your boss is done, don't go to other employees. Negativity is defined by taking your criticisms to people who can't do anything about it. So if the boss has made a decision that you don't like and you tell everybody in your office that you don't like it, you're being negative. Not because you're, not only because you're speaking badly, but because you're taking your criticism to people who can't do anything about it. And then all that does is that just undermines everything. If you don't like what's been done, you have to find a way to go to those who have authority to change it, or you need to keep your mouth shut, or you need to come up with constructive solutions. Otherwise, spreading negativity just kills everything. And then he says a few things like, be kind, be interested in your coworkers. And I love this one. Make it a point to greet your coworkers in a friendly manner and to say goodnight to them when you leave. And to say goodnight to them when you leave. You know, it's... It seems so small, but just that little bit of putting out of human warmth. And see, what, what he's really saying in all of this is, you know, treat your coworkers with respect and give them of your heart's energy. Be interested in their lives. Be kind. Never break a confidence. Be polite. And don't be crude. 
The patterns of speech you use toward your coworkers can have an uplifting or a depressing effect on the entire workforce. Be clean-minded, courteous, and never coarse. You know, it, this is just like, don't ever underestimate the power of one person to uplift an atmosphere. I know nowadays, you know, things that would have been scandalous not very long ago are very common. But just because people around you are that way doesn't mean you have to be that way, ever. Keep your own dignity, but in a kindly way. So, and then there's one last point, and then that's the last thing I will say. It says, we tend to think that we're going to wait until something is interesting to us, and then we're going to put out energy. I remember uh, someone wrote to Swamiji years ago, and she sort of essentially said, I keep waiting for something to interest me so I can get engaged. He said, you'll, you'll never find anything interesting until you give energy to it. You know, we're, when, often when we're, we find something dull, it's because we're not putting out any energy. And things become interesting often when we ma- uh, manufacture interest by putting energy into it. And this is, again, be realistic. Um, develop a habit of just being interested Interest depends not on the energy you receive, but on what you give out to your work, to others, and to the world. Very, very important lessons for right livelihood in this world. Okay. Does that cover it? All right. We'll move on to Lesson 17 then.